Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Elisa Lorello, who is a best-selling author. Elisa originally grew up in Long Island, but is now based in Montana. She has written 13 books, mostly novels, but also a couple of other books, including a memoir, Friends of Mine, 30 Years in the Life of a Duran Duran Fan, which I can testify is absolutely wonderful. And she also has written a book, The Writer's Habit, which uh, puts her knowledge and experience of being a writer into a book and giving advice for other would-be writers. Her first novel, Faking It, was published back in 2008, uh, which is also the first in a series of novels, while she has also written a number of standalone books. Elisa, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Now, the first thing that struck me, actually, when, you know, when I've just mentioned that your first novel, Faking It, came out in 2008, given the fact that you've written 13 books in 13 years, that is pretty prolific. Believe it or not, I can't believe it. <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I, you know, when somebody's making an introduction or something, I'm like, wow, that really is impressive. And then it's like, oh, that's me. <laughs> so yeah, it sometimes it even blows my mind. Faking it is the one that's kind of been through a couple of different reprints along the years, because the first incarnation was a self-published one in 2008, like you said. And then in 2009, I first published it as an ebook to Kindle. And then in January 2010, it just skyrocketed up the bestseller list. And then it was contracted with a publisher in like June of 2010, came out it was re-released in 2011, and then it went through even one more kind of like sublet publishing deal. And then that's since been retired, and now it's back with its contracted publisher. So yeah, so that one, that's the one that's been kind of on the roller coaster in good ways. Because I think as well, just even for any writer or, or, or some anybody who's listening here that's got aspirations to write, I mean, I think that's that's a great example of Obviously, first of all, the main thing is you have to write the book to get it published. And then, as, you, as you've as you kind of said, you, you, don't, you don't know where that journey is going to take you. And that book, I suppose, for you, it was like getting that first step of publishing. But then it takes off and it transforms your writing life, I suppose. Oh, it totally did. I mean, and, it, and again, it was one of those things where it was such a everything just kind of aligned the right way. I don't think I could do that, what I did. I still try to kind of retrace the steps. And it was just that kind of, if the Kindle hadn't been the number one selling item at Christmas that year, if people weren't looking for, because I, I had the book for 99 cents at the time, if people weren't looking for good 99 cent books, you know, it's just kind of all those, all those things kind of lined up if there hadn't been forums at the time where people, where there was word of mouth, because it was a really amateur cover design and even I, I edited it myself and one of the things I learned is I'm not as good an editor as I thought I was but yeah so it was really a right place right time thing I mean I've self-published since and even now with successes I've had it is 10 times harder now 
for me to get my book out there in an independently published way than it was with that first one. But, you know, also with your first one, you don't really have anything to lose. (laughs) So you're willing to kind of take more risks and you get more excited about it. And it's more of a passion project. But I had a full-time teaching position at the time. And so I was, I really didn't have anything to lose. I mean, I was pretty much set in my other profession at that point. Um, So if the novel didn't do well, I was happy if it sold 50 copies at that time. And I suppose as well, when you know that you've always had aspirations to write, and and then it's also hard to replicate that. I suppose that thrill of the first time you see something you've written that started as an idea in your head, it comes to fruition as a book, and you see your name on the front of it. That's a thrill in itself. It gives you oh, and that that thrill never gets old. You know, I still get that thrill now when I see, you know, when I have a new book out and it's like, I wrote that. I don't even know how I did it, but I did it. Yeah. yeah. And the, the faking, it was the first, I think there's a series of there's four books and also a companion book as well. Yes. And, and that series of books as well as the standalone books. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Was that, was that I, always good to, to do them as a, a series of books? When I first wrote Faking It, I knew when I got to the end of the book that her story wasn't done yet. And I knew there was at least going to be a sequel. And I wrote the sequel and those two books together, along with the book Why I Love Singlehood, were the first three books that got contracted. And then I was in the middle of writing my fourth book, I think it was Adulation, when all of a sudden this character, like, literally walked into the backyard of my mind and introduced herself. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is going to be a trilogy. So then I thought I was content to write those three books. And then I decided to do the spinoff with that new character. And then, oh gosh, what year was this? 2013 or 2014? I had read a book that was, I think it's called a companion novel. And you see this quite a bit, especially again with series, where they write the same story, but from the point of view of another character. So there was a self-published author named L. LaFlorian, who had written this book called, I think it was called The Frog Prince. And then she wrote a companion novel called Gilding the Lily Pad, which was in the in the point of view of the other character, not the, you know, not the original main yeah. character. And I really liked it. And I, and I loved seeing that. And it was the same story, but it was just told from the alternate point of view. And I really liked that. And, and I did it kind of as fun to say, you know, I think I would love to do faking it in Devin's point of view. And it was a great experience because I learned about him. I learned things about him that I didn't know when I wrote the original. And, and from a craft standpoint, I think that companion novel is actually the better book of the two. But they really, companion novel is a good descriptor because they really do kind of go together nicely that way. And to see what you thought was going through his head and then you realize there was something else going through his head or or vice versa, you know, where he thinks he knows what she's doing, but he doesn't know what she's doing. And so that was really fun. So that's kind of, that's the series in a nutshell, basically. And will I write another one? If the story comes to me, I absolutely will. The other thing you just mentioned, obviously, the, the, the thrill of, of seeing your book published and your name on the cover never leaves you. How is the experience of actually writing the books? Because obviously, as you evolve as a writer, there's different challenges, there's different things you learn. But still from that getting to that point from where you have the initial inspiration and then the slog of actually getting that 80, 90,000 words down and working through that. Have you learned things about how to do that better? Or is it still always a challenge? 
That's a good question. From a mental point of view, it's harder because I feel a lot more pressure now than in those earlier books. I'm constantly worried about the commercial aspect of it, um, which is not a good place to be in your head (laughs) um, when you're doing it. So I feel a lot of pressure with that. So that's gotten a lot more difficult. And it takes some of the joy out of it, quite frankly, because you're so worried about that. Oh, am I going to be able to sell it? Is it going to do this? Is it going to do that? How am I going to market it? And all of those things. So that's not good. But I am definitely, again, from a craft standpoint, I'm way better than I was when I first started doing this. I have more of a feel for a story arc, for example, or for a character arc. And I was already pretty instinctive with it when I started. I just, like, it's funny, I was talking to somebody about this. I took a screenwriting class uh, where they taught story arc. And I just kind of sat there and marveled. I said, I've been doing this without realizing I've been doing it. (laughs) You know, I've been already writing my books this way without without consciously knowing that I was doing it. So what I was able to do then is to do it in more, it was still instinctive, but at the same time in the revision process, I was able to see the beats a lot better because I knew now how to out kind of outline them. And, And I'm still not an outliner before the story. I have to outline when I have a solid first draft done, then I can kind of make a very rough outline. And I, and again, I do it through that structure. So in that sense, yeah, that has gotten a lot better. You know, I, I have a better feel for character. I have a better feel for structure. I have a better feel for craft, but I'm not currently in a good place mentally in terms of, I just feel way too pressured to have another hit, (laughs) which isn't good. It's interesting you said, and I listened, I was listening to an interview with a writer recently on another podcast, and she was asked for one bit of advice for writers, and she'd said, get your first draft down as quickly as possible, because after that, it's just kind of just really what you said. Once you've got that, that is the the starting point for when you can work and chip away and, and own it to perfection, I suppose, but you need to get the first draft down. It's certainly the way it works for me. You know, I know people who are just such staunch outliners. You know, they cannot write a word until they've got a solid outline done. And I think certain genres you have to. I think, for example, like a mystery thriller, I think you pretty much have to have those beats before you start writing. I think the kind of stuff I write, it's not as crucial to do that. Every time I've tried to outline before I started writing, it sapped the process for me. Now, what I will do sometimes is just write basic stuff down just so I don't forget. Like if I have a story, like I've had a story idea that's kicking around that I don't want to start working on until I get my other one done, but I don't want to forget it either because I'm getting older and I forget these things. (laughs) So in some cases I am kind of putting the beats down, but it's mostly just so I don't forget it as opposed to, Hey, I have to make this outline. It's just kind of, this is what I'm kicking around right now, but it doesn't have to be set in stone that way. But yeah, for me, I have to get that first draft done. And then the blood, sweat and tears for me is in the revising. It's in the rewriting process and the rereading and taking notes and stuff like that. But I bang out the first draft usually pretty quickly. I mean, I can can sometimes write 5,000 words in one sitting because I'm just so in that zone without worrying about, do I have the right word? Do I have the right scene? Do I have the, it's just, let me get the basics of it down. That's an impressive word count, I have to say. 
The other thing doesn't that happen I, often, <laughs> but it does happen. It has happened, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, if, if only we could all do that, I mean, that would be. Yeah. If I could do it every time, believe me, I would. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be a book a month you'd be publishing. Then. Yeah, exactly. The other thing, obviously, and it kind of feeds into what we're doing today on the Read All About It podcast is for writers, one of the, the most basic bits of advice is to read and to read a lot and to, you know, yeah. extensively. Which again is the whole point of this podcast is to celebrate reading and celebrate books. And so, if if I can take you all the way back to your childhood to get your favourite book from childhood, and you kind of gave me some ideas of you know what what you got you into reading and, and where you kind of learned reading before yes. you before you get into I suppose it was Judy Bloom, which would be oh yeah, I suppose the big author for you in your childhood. Oh, totally, yeah. And it's funny because it, I kind of got late into adulthood before I realized just how much of an influence she's been. When I started my, you know, when I really got serious about writing novels, I was citing two screenwriters actually, Aaron Sorkin and Nora Ephron. Nora Ephron, best known for When Harry Met Sally. Sorkin, best known for A Few Good Men and The West Wing. And I was citing them as my, you know, most influential authors. But the older I was getting, I was realizing, you know, all those Judy Bloom books <laughs> um, just seeped into like my DNA. And again, I think it was, I was almost taking them for granted how influential they had been to me. And then I, I did an online, you know, that there's that website masterclass and I took the Judy Bloom course and I was just absolutely blown away by it and just realized oh yeah I and again it was both as a reader and a writer and I'm a creature of habit which is a good thing and not a good thing I mean I'm it's you know I like an author and, and then I try to read almost everything that author's ever written and then I read it over and over and over again you know like I'll read the same books multiple times or I do that with TV shows or I do that with you know movies or music you know um so I tend to be a creature of habit that way. But yeah, all I, I when I think about it now, yeah, she took up basically from age 10 to 13, probably, you know, that was yeah. just all I was reading at the time. Because one of the books that you'd mentioned, and you'd said you maybe which you were in second grade, for people not in, in the US, what, what age would second grade be? In terms second of grade would be eight years old. So... The book yeah. you mentioned was Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. And quite often on this podcast, particularly for that book in, in childhood, it's that appeal of, you know, if you're in second grade, you're reading ahead, the characters are ahead of you. And it's like that excitement of this is what's on the horizon for me. Yes. Yeah. And that's probably what intrigued, part of what intrigued me about that particular book. But I think it was also, you know, I always loved being read to. I was, I was read, you know, I was fortunate to grow up in a family that where reading was encouraged. And I also, you know, as you've seen with friends of mine, I had a large family and I'm the youngest of seven. So I had a lot of siblings and my parents to, who would read to me. So I loved that experience. So my second grade teacher read that book to us, read Tales of the Fourth Grade Nothing to us. So I think both of those things are what turned me on to Judy Bloom. It was a pleasurable experience to have that book read to me as a child. And then on top of that, to be old enough to read it myself turned out to be equally pleasurable. And then, like I said, it was, well, let me see what else she has. And then it was, I love this. And then let me see what else she has. And I love this. And I just, I devoured every, you know, I was at the library every week, made a beeline for the Judy Bloom section and just took out every single book I could. Because I mean, I think she's been 
phenomenally successful. And, and oh. I know, I'm not sure if how massive she was in the States quite replicated itself elsewhere, but I've spoke to people who, you know, kind of grew up in Scotland. And again, it was Judy Bloom books that they were reading as they were going through what would be a primary school and then as they kind of hit adolescence. And the books, particularly with the kind of subject matter that they were dealing with, were really important in terms of allowing young people to, especially young, young girls, young women, to kind of process these things, but in a really intelligent way and not talking down to them. Well, the you know, it's funny. I, I even, in faking it, Devin asks Andy at one point, well, how did, how did you learn about sex? And she kind of flippantly answers Judy Bloom books. I think for some people that was like, a legit answer, you know, Cer- certainly for me. I mean, there was so much I, you know, I learned about in the world and she, but she was so good at doing it very matter of factly where she wasn't, she wasn't addressing those subjects in a condescending way. And she wasn't addressing them in a disrespectful way either. It was very, these are what your kids are going through. And this is what where their brains are going in terms of how are they developing psychologically? I mean, it was the psychological aspect of most of it. And there was a little bit of modeling too. I mean, I remember, you know, being in sixth grade and, you know, which was, I was about 11, I think at that point, 12, and reading, Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret, and, you know, my two best friends and I form a little club and we had our little boy books where we wrote down the boys we liked. And, you know, so there was modeling of that too. And reading It's Not the End of the World, I think, which, you know, her parents got divorced. And then when my parents got divorced, and I remember sending on my parents' anniversary, I bought the matching anniversary cards because that's what the character did. So there was there was modeling there, too, um, which was really interesting. But yeah, and even her, you know, the adult books, I, I don't think I even had realized it. I mean, it's only been in the last, I think, 10 years where there were a couple of books. I'm like, oh, I didn't know she wrote that book and took it out and read it. And again, it's like, well, this is brilliant. Because it strikes me that probably then and probably even now that a lot of parents could have done with maybe reading those books to give them an idea of what their kids were going through. Because sometimes that kind of, you know, that way, that line of communication when you're younger can be quite awkward because either or both of you are too embarrassed to talk about certain things. But that would have been probably quite informative for parents as well as obviously really helpful to children. Well, I think my mom, as a matter of fact, was the one who kind of told me when to read Are You There, God? So that after I read it, that would be me coming to talk because I did go to talk to her after reading that book. And and I think it was kind of that was her way of getting the door opened without her having to approach me and say, it's time to have a little talk. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Instead, it was, oh, let me let her read that book and then come to me with questions. Or I, I actually I think I might have gone to my sister first. And then my sister said, go talk to mom. To me, that just that, that goes to the, you know, why Judy Bloom is so great and so popular. I think she sold over 82 million copies worldwide. That yeah. goes to the heart of it. Yeah, and still selling. I mean, they're they're dated, but not dated. You could see certain things about something like just cultural, pop cultural references in, in a couple of books that obviously don't hold up now. But again, the emotions and the psychology of it is timeless. The one about bullying blubber that book is as relevant today as it was back when it was written i was also curious you'd mentioned that you're quite a big rereader of books because i'm i'm the kind of opposite because every time although actually as we speak i'm rereading all of kittredge just because every sentence is just perfect and it's you're just marveling it but by large i always feel 
if I'm rereading a book, I should be reading. There's, there's so many other books lurking in the shadows saying, you've not read me yet, read me now. Well, that's that's the dilemma. You know, it, I know I'm missing out. So I sometimes have to kind of curb that craving so I can really branch out a little bit more and read other things. But yeah, my temptation is always to go back to what I know and already love. Well, if I can take you on then from your childhood and it's to the kind of teenage formative years, and the, it was interesting that the, one of the books that you gave me was The Outsiders by Essie Hinton, which you'd said yes. that your older sister had originally read to you and your, your twin brother. So I'm curious, what age were you then? Because obviously she's getting it at an age appropriate she... to her. What age were you? Okay, so if she read it in junior high, she would have been about 15, 14 or 15 years old. So I was probably about nine or 10 when she read that to me. She's quite young for that book, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. But I loved it. I was completely similar thing where it was like, read more, read more, read more, you know, that you were experiencing that you were just so excited by it. And and she loved the book so much. I mean, that's kind of why she was reading it to us. She kind of instinctively knew this was something we would like. So she read it to us. And again, reread that book every year after she read it to me. So I might, I might've started reading it on my own when I was 12. And yeah, just reread it every year so that by the time it was assigned, when I was 14 or 15, I practically knew it by heart. You could have taught the class. I could have taught the class. Yeah. And, and I still read it along with the class. You know, I, I, I wouldn't have had to have, but again, I loved the book so much that I read it again. Yeah. Because what I like about those sort of memories is that I'm guessing that whenever you do or you did read the book, then as well as enjoying it, it reminds you of sitting there with your brother while your your sister read the book to you, which is just a lovely, I suppose, a lovely experience to experience again. Yes. I mean, you know, that's the thing. And you'll probably find it in almost every major period of my life that it was a reading experience like that of being having being read to. That's part of the pleasure of reading. It's not just the reading, but it's when I am read to something really good happens. So do you do you listen to a lot of audiobooks then as a result of that? I used to. Um, when I was commuting to work, I used to listen mostly to audiobooks. I don't do it now because unfortunately, I, you know, we've become evolved into it's hard to sit and do one thing now. I mean, I remember being able to sit and like listen to an album from start to finish. And now it's like you could barely get through a TV show without checking your phone. So it's a little harder for me to sit and concentrate on an audiobook. Sometimes I'll listen to something and play solitaire while I'm doing it just to have something mindless to do. If I take another, you know, if I have another job where I'm commuting, where it's a significant commute, then I'll definitely do it. I mean, the last, the last job I, you know, was three miles. So it wasn't, wasn't worth it for me to listen to an audiobook then. But in fact, I got through all the Harry Potter books that way, did it all during my commute. And those were so wonderfully read. Because I'm quite intrigued. I've never actually listened to an audiobook, but I know like from people I work with, friends who, as you say, either on a commute or, or even just if they're a long drive or they're out for a walk or they're out walking a dog or whatever, and they are big into audiobooks. I'm cu- quite curious to see, cause, because I'm so attached to the physical copy of the book, just to see what the experience is like of listening to it. It, depend- it really does, I think, depend on the reader because I've had... Poor experiences of audiobooks because the narrator 
it sounds silly to say this, but they were reading it as opposed to performing it. I mean, again, what was so great about the Harry Potter books was Jim Dale performed those books and just made it so engaging as he read them. Um, well, do you know what? I, I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about the crime writer Chester Himes and his books have been re-released here. So they played a wee clip of the audiobook. Yes. Samuel L. Jackson that read it. And it goes. Oh, see, there you go. Exactly what you were saying. It was like, I thought, I could sit and listen to Samuel L. Jackson read anything all day. Exactly. So, yeah. So, depending on John Taylor, um, you know, when when he read his memoir, the uh, Duran Duran's bassist, for those who don't know on this particular podcast, I listened to that on audiobook. And again, same thing. It's like, oh, well, John Taylor can read to me all day. Um, that was a very pleasurable experience because it did. It felt like he was reading that to me personally. Even my own books. I mean, several of mine have been put into audio and that's hard when it's your own when you're listening to your own book and it's not you narrating it because I hear certain things in my head you know I know that these characters so well so I know the way they speak I know how they would you know like they might you know the narrator says a line of dialogue in a way that I didn't say it in my head um dialogue is very very much an audio experience to me when I'm writing I hear every bit of it and this is I think why I like Aaron Sorkin so much because he says when he writes dialogue it sounds like music to him and I have this very similar quality I hear dialogue in rhythm I hear dialogue in intonation I hear dialogue in the syntax and that kind of thing um so if a narrator doesn't say it quite the way I hear it then that's a little uncomfortable for me as the author. And same thing, there there is, and I won't say which book and I won't say which narrator because I don't want to slight any of them and it was just a personal thing, but I didn't like the way one of my books was narrated at all to the point where I said, if this wasn't my book, I would have put this down. You know, I would not have finished, wanted to finish the story. I mean, it made the story very unappealing. And then on the other hand, there was, there's been a couple of, audiobook narrators of my books that I'm like, oh my God, I love this. I love the way she did this, you know, or he. You've mentioned Aaron Sorkin a couple of times. Can I make a confession to you? Yes. That I have never watched The West Wing. And Ah. I told my younger sister this recently and she was appalled and said, you have to watch it. So I'm sorry. That's okay. Anybody who know who's been following me knows that I just very recently finally started watching Downton Abbey after people trying to persuade me. And then I finally, finally started watching that. And now I'm hooked on that. And again, talk about Creature of Habit. I'm on my third watching of that series. I try not to watch too much TV because I, th- I always feel that like I should be doing something else, whether it's writing or reading or whatever. So I only just recently, during the, the first lockdown in Scotland, yeah. went through the, the whole of The Sopranos. Because again, people in work kept telling me, you need to watch this. So eventually I well, thought, right. to me, there's a difference between watching television and watching a great show, so to speak. To me, watching television is being very, almost brain draining. When you're not, you don't need to be invested, when you don't need to be, you know, when, you, when you're just there to kind of watch it and blow off steam and not do anything else and not think about your job or anything like that. That's watching television to me. When you watch something like 
the West Wing or the Sopranos or Breaking Bad or, and you know, Downton Abbey, any of these shows that are just so well written and so well acted, you're watching stories. And if you're a story lover, that's really what you're doing. You're investing yourself in the story. So I don't, I don't have that kind of guilt necessarily if I say, well, I should be reading more. And to me, if I'm absorbing all that great dialogue, for example, of the West Wing, that is storytelling to me, that, or that is immersing myself in craft or immersing myself in story. The other book you mentioned in this category was a book called My Name is Asha Lev by Chaim yeah. Potok. So I was in my mid to late teens. My high school art teacher said to the class, if you are serious about becoming an artist, then you should read this book. At that time, that was kind of the track I was on. I was more on art, although I wasn't, art didn't come as, like drawing and painting didn't come as naturally as writing did to me, but I was more on that track and I was being more steered on that track. So the more I got immersed into that, then I finally decided to read that book. And I think I had told, I'd mentioned this to you that I can't really articulate why that book has stayed with me. It's not really because of the life of an artist <laughs> anymore. It's, it's a really, in a lot of ways, it's a really heartbreaking story. It's this orthodox Jewish family, Hasidic family. And for this young boy to want to be a painter or to have this gift of being an artist was just so not what this family had for him. You know, it was such a disturbing thing for him and it was so secular. And so that that constant, constant clash between them, there was something very riveting about that. But there was also something about the art, again, that I can't really... The author did such a good job of that in terms of that's what my art teacher wanted me to respond to was how he was, his brain was wired <laughs> in a way um, yeah. for that. Because I love that idea of, because teachers can be so important and, and positive or negative ways, but for that teacher to obviously identify, and whether it's art as in painting or art as in writing, it's still, it's still art, but to give you that as a kind of, even to get you starting to think as a teenager of that, and your place in the world and how you do that. I think that's a brilliant thing that a teacher can do. That teacher, I, I doubt he's alive today, unfortunately. But if he was, I would try to track him down and thank him because I didn't appreciate back then what he was trying to do. You know, when you're that age, you just kind of, you know, dismiss it as kind of almost crackpot. You know, like, well, why do I want to become an artist or what? You know, and not only that, but I, as you know, from, from friends of mine, I didn't have good self-esteem at that time. I was so immersed in the family stuff that was going on in my life at that time. And he had said to me, at one point, I gave, I submitted my portfolio for him to review because I was going to start submitting it to colleges, you know, art colleges and things. And he said at the time, you may be the best artist here at Walt Whitman High School, but you've got a class B portfolio and you're going to have to work 10 times as hard as everybody else to keep up. And at the time, that just crushed me. <laughs> it absolutely crushed me. But a, he was completely right. And I think I even knew it back then. He was completely right. B, you know, he may not have delivered it very well, <laughs> but he really was concerned. He knew I had talent because he would say that to me. You've got talent. You've got talent. I did well in his classes. 
But I think he wanted me to go further. He wanted me to push myself. He wanted me to stretch my limits. And I just didn't have the emotional capacity to do it at that time. But he was absolutely there. Had I been more willing and had I been in a better mindset and had I had the self-esteem, if I had come to him and said, will you help me? He would have taken me under his wing and given me all the encouragement. But yeah, he he really was great like that. I mean, that he was willing to share that and yeah, offer that to people as a book, like, and to offer students and to say, listen, here's a point of reference for you. You know, here's a framework for you to go on. The first line of that, of the first book is just, I've, I've used it when teaching workshops on writing introductions. I mean, when you're hooked, he literally introduces himself, you know, my name is Asher Lev, the Asher Lev. So right away, you are engaged with this person, you know, and you forget he's a character. And the other thing he did really well in that book is you want to go to the museum that his paintings are, you know, you're convinced these paintings that he's created are real, you know, that this is a real character with real paintings. And you want to, you find yourself wanting to find the painting and to see it. And yet, uh, if a movie was made called My Name is Asher Lev and they showed the painting, I think I would have been disappointed. I want to keep the painting up here and I want to keep belonging to see the painting for myself. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest in this episode is Elisa Lorello. Elisa, we're on to your third book choice, and that's a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the books that you've chosen is any books by Craig Lancaster. And I suppose <laughs> you have to declare an interest at this point. I'm a little biased there because that's my husband. <laughs> no, I like the fact that, again, when we were corresponding beforehand, and you obviously said that you, you'd always recommend his books, but you also had done it prior to the two of you being married. So you've obviously been a, a fan of his work and his writing as well. But it's, I think that's a nice the nice thing anyway that you... And, and if I well, ever get to speak to him for the podcast, he better mention your books in this category. <laughs> I think he will. He, you know, well, what's funny, there is a funny story where we had met in 2011, but we hadn't read each other's stuff yet. It wasn't actually until he read Friends of Mine and then he sent me a couple of his novels and I started reading them and I thought these are really good. And then we were kind of swapping, you know, we were kind of trading books and we had the same publisher at the time. We also had the same acquisitions editor. So the editor came to me and said, would you read Craig Lancaster's latest book? It hasn't come out yet, but we would like a blurb from you. We're, we would like to get some more female writers. So I said, sure. Yeah, no, I'd love to do it. The book is called The Fallow Season of Hugo Hunter, and it's about a boxer in the waning days of his career. So at first I was like, oh God, I don't know that I'm going to like this story about boxing. But it, it was, I still think it's one of his best novels. And I was just so blown away by it. And, and I, you know, my blurb was something like he makes me need to bring in my A game, you know, need to step up my A game. And, and I, I just really, really loved it. To this day, the blurb is in, like, it's part of the books, you know, like it's printed in the inside flap, I think. I think it's still on the Amazon product page. And it's like, oh, God, I hope nobody thinks like, oh, they went to her wife <laughs> or his <laughs> wife, excuse me. They went to his wife to get a blurb. It was like, no, 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 we had no. Because I was going to ask, you know, 
if there was one of his books that you would recommend? That's his best selling and probably best known work are what's colloquially called the Edward books. 600 Hours is award winning. I think it's his biggest seller, uh, his best selling. It was his debut. That series is wonderful. Actually, my favorite of the series is the third book, Edward Unspooled. But I would, I would absolutely, if you're, if you said, well, where should I start with Craig Lancaster's books? That's what I would tell you. Start with 600 Hours of Edward, get through that series, and then go on to the others. And we, we co-wrote a book called You, Me, and Mr. Blue Sky. That we did when we were married. Um, although it's funny, we did, we would talk about it as friends, everyone. When we were getting to be really, really good friends, I think once we mentioned, hey, you know, maybe we should try co-writing a book. When we were married, we had this idea, we were on a road trip and this idea came to us and we decided to write it. We had a really, really good time writing it. And it's more in my genre than his. He writes, he writes more slice of life type stories. And he's more, I almost want to say he's commercial literary. He has literary eloquence, but they're very commercially appealing. Whereas I'm much more genre specific in terms of romantic comedy or women's fiction or that type of thing. So we wrote a romantic comedy and he has gotten dinged for it, you know, from reviewers who are like, well, I don't know why he would write that kind of book, you know, but we, we had a great time writing it. We had a lot of fun with it. Because obviously that, that I was curious about that because... And I think when I was just looking into the book, it was a finalist in the International Book Awards. So obviously... Two finalists. It won two finalists. Yeah. But I just, it was just that you said it was a great experience because I always wondered that, you know, that to co-write with anyone, I think it's obviously different because you're so used to just doing it yourself. But then the added thing is the fact that it's uh, you're his wife, he's your husband. That's a different dynamic, I suppose, in terms of the whole writing process. Fortunately, worked really well for us. It was almost like good jazz where he knew exactly where where to pick up where I left off and vice versa. You know, it was, we'd mostly just swapped out chapters. So he would start the chapter and I'd say, I know exactly where to take this. And then I would go to the next one. And then he'd say, oh, I know exactly what to do next. And, and that's pretty much the way the first draft of it went. We were just kind of riffing off of each other. And again, we instinctively knew where to take the story. And then as we got into revision, we honed that and did more talking about it together. Well, what if we did this? What if we do this? What if we, you know, we had a lot of discussion about the ending and that that type of thing. But it just so happened to work with us. And that was my second collaborating. Well, it was my second novel that I collaborated on. My first one was a good friend of mine who was actually a former student of mine. Um, and she and I collaborated. That was why I love singlehood. And then I had had a collaboration experience a couple of years after that that did not go well and had good intentions, but we didn't click very well. And I wound up being a bit too controlling. And I think I said, we better not do this. Because <laughs> <laughs> the, other, the other thing I was going to ask you as well is that obviously most of the time you're writing on your own, Craig's writing on his own. Are you his first reader uh, when he's yeah. finished the manuscript and him for you? In fact, a lot of times, again, we read to each other. So when he finishes a chapter, he reads it to me. You know, I sit and kind of put my head down and close my eyes and listen. And then I give him some feedback if he asks me specifically for feedback. He's the type of writer where he, when I say he gets it right on the first try, I mean, he's very, very meticulous about his word choice. So whereas, like I said, I can have a 5,000 word day 
in a first draft, he might get 1,000 in a first draft. But he's so careful about every word of that first draft. So it's in way better shape <laughs> than my first drafts. Mine are kind of all over the place and directionless and stuff. So he, he does that a lot. He reads to me. I sometimes will wait because I know my stuff is too messy in the beginning, but eventually I will start reading my, my books to him. Or we'll read, like I said, we'll read, um, you mean Mr. Blue Sky, sometimes we read the chapter out loud to each other. Sometimes we just emailed it to the other person and then read it on our own. Because I, I was curious because, you know, that way sometimes you always want to give your, your work to someone else to read because you need that uh, yes. feedback. But it's choosing the right people because, you know, sometimes if it's family or friends, even if they try and be constructive in what they're saying, they don't want to hurt your feelings. And, and what you need is somebody who will be constructive, but absolutely honest, because that's what you need as a writer. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, we were doing that while we were just friends. In fact, that's kind of why we became such good friends, because at this point, we were both working from home. You know, we were both full-time writers by this point. And we just so happened to be writing at the same time, or we were just so happened to be on Facebook at the same time. So I'd shoot him a quick message and say, what are you doing? Taking a break. Oh, what'd you just write? And he would send me a couple of paragraphs of what he just wrote. And then I would do the same thing and send him a couple of paragraphs of what I just wrote. And not even to get feedback, it was just sharing. So we responded really well to that as writers, or sometimes it is for specific feedback. I, I'd ask him, are you feeling anything with this? Or can you see where this is going? Or can you know what What's the response that you're getting from this? Other times it's like, hey, I just wrote this. I want you to hear it, you know? I would like to, at some point in the future, to get him on the podcast, but yeah. but, but you're not allowed to tell him what his answer is. So, so I'd be curious to see what he gives us his answer for that one. <laughs> just to make sure that he says the right thing. Okay. Well, if I can take you on, uh, Elisa, to your fourth book choice, and that is a book that I couldn't pay you to read again. And again, when we were corresponding, I loved every aspect of your answer. One is, <laughs> the first part, which I kind of totally relate to, is that, you know, life's too short. If you're not enjoying a book, go on to read something else, because you'll always find a book to enjoy. I'm absolutely in agreement with that. I also love the fact that you said, if somebody will pay you know, if you'll read anything. <laughs> Probably, yeah. I don't, you know, I, I can't, I honestly couldn't, I really was thinking like, what? if you paid me enough, I could read it again, or I could give it another try. And sometimes, it, you know, some, there are a couple of books where it's just, I couldn't get into it. You know, like, for example, I remember I was in a book club, and we were reading the Hunger Games series. And the first one, I just, for whatever reason, I couldn't get into it during book club, and put it down after, I don't even remember how far in I got. But at some point later in the year, I went back to it. For whatever reason, I decided to give it another try. And I got really hooked and decided to go buy the other the other two books in the series and kind of blew through those really quick. Now, there's nothing that makes me want to reread those, even though, you know, like I said, if I love something, I'll, I'll be a creature of habit. It was enough to say, oh, I have to see what the rest of the series is. But there was nothing there that made me say, I want to go back and reread this. But I did for whatever whatever was going on with me the first time that I wasn't willing, something made me give it a second chance. So I do think sometimes that can inform you 
or inform somebody to say, you didn't like it then, you might like it now. And again, school. I started picking up things like The Great Gatsby when I was 30. In school, it was like, this is terrible, or I don't get it. You know, I, I was a psychology major in college. So what I, one of the things I learned about through adolescent psychology is like, you're literally, you're not, your brain's not ready for certain things. Like cognitively speaking, your brain is not ready for certain things. And I think some of those books that are assigned to you in high school, you're kind of cognitively not ready for it. And I think something like Great Gatsby was one of them. I wasn't ready for that as a 16-year-old. But I read it at 30 and I was like, oh, okay, I can <laughs> I can get into this. I can appreciate this. And a lot of those books that were just such a slog. I think as well, you know that way sometimes when you're, whether it's at school or college or university, it's the idea of you have to read it. If somebody says you, you have to read that, as opposed to, you know, as you say, you you one day pick up the great great Gatsby yes. because you want to read it. It's a totally, even mentally, it's a totally different experience. Then. Well, and that's one of the reasons why I think I was so late to something like Downton Abbey because it was everybody was telling me, you have to watch this. And it's like, I'll watch it when I'm good and ready to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, oh man, I should have started watching this years ago. And that's happened to me with a lot of things. And I, and my twin brother is like that too. Sometimes I pester him. You have to you have to watch this or you have to read this. You have to read this. And he will not do it. He doesn't want to be told to do something. He wants yeah. to pick it up on his own and then he will do it. So there is definitely that. Or when something is really, really popular, I tend to not watch it or read it until the hype has died down. And then maybe eventually I will pick it up and take a look at it. Yeah. Because that's one of, one of the many things that I love about doing this podcast is the fact that everybody, as you, as you said, everybody has a different opinion. And I remember it was almost, I think it was either two weeks in a row, there was two different guests. One chose a book they would recommend to anyone was The Great Gatsby. The next week, the person who chose a book they couldn't be paid to read again it was, was The Great, Great Gatsby. Gatsby. Exactly. That's exactly the way it happens all the time. So yeah, it's just so subjective. We're on to the, the fifth and, and final question in the podcast, and that is either the last book you've read or the book you're currently reading. And uh, one that you'd mentioned to me was the, the biography of Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. I think I'd given a little bit of background on that too. I had, I've been reading a lot of nonfiction lately and somebody, somebody had mentioned, somebody had recommended the book Creativity Inc. Uh, INC Incorporated. It was written by Ed Catmull, who was, I think he's still the president of Pixar Studios. And it was kind of the story of Pixar, but it was also a little bit about how to run a creative company. In fact, when I was a psychology major, I was actually interested in the psychology of business, like leadership and running companies and employee motivation and things like that. So I've always been interested in that kind of that subject. So that's one of the reasons why this, this particular book interested me. And I had vaguely remembered that Steve Jobs had bought Pixar. And then when I read Creativity Inc., it was more a little talked a little bit more about how he became involved and what he what the original vision for Pixar was and then how it became what it became. And so that was interesting to me. And then suddenly I just, for whatever reason, said, you know, well, now I'm curious to learn a little bit more about Steve Jobs. <laughs> and it was just like, it's almost like going down the rabbit hole. And so I said, well, that's the authorized biography. And I think I was just curious to see if there was any more that I didn't already know in terms of what had already been kind of written about him and said about him and that kind of thing. 
and in some ways, yeah, it was pretty much what I knew already knew or already had already been portrayed and that kind of thing. It was very dense. It was a very, very dense book and thick. I mean, it was so it took me, I'm a slow reader to begin with, but it took me, a, a, yeah, I took it out of the library. So I had to like renew it twice, <laughs> to extend, get the extension on, on it to finish it. There were aspects of it that were interesting. I mean, I did kind of write down a few, like highlighted a few things for myself, you know, had a notebook next to me and just jotted down a few things like, you know, Apple's philosophy at the time and that type of thing or his, some, you know, a particular insight that he had had was worth writing down. So there were some aspects that yeah. were interesting about it. But yeah, so that that was the last book. Yeah, because when you, again, when you were just sending me your list and you you mentioned the fact that particularly when you're in the midst of, of writing uh, your own novels, you tend to uh, veer towards nonfiction rather than fiction because your mind's so immersed in the fiction of what you're writing. Yeah, it depends on what it is. So if if there's a particular subject matter I want to know more about while I'm writing, I might gravitate to that kind of book, and that might be a fiction book. But I tend, I find that if I'm writing fiction and then reading fiction, there's something that clashes there, and I have a harder time with it. But if I still want to pleasure read, then I find that I could do that a lot easier by reading nonfiction. Or sometimes, like, I remember when I first wrote Faking It, actually, it was like the year or two before that, I was reading a lot of humorous books, either fiction or nonfiction, because I wanted to get more of the feel of how to write comedy. So I was reading a lot of different kinds of books at that time that was more about that. Then I was reading romantic comedy because I was writing romantic. The funny, you know, the funny thing is, so many writers will tell an aspiring writer, read everything you can in the genre that you're writing. If you're writing mysteries, read mysteries. If you're writing paranormal romance, read paranormal romance. The funny thing is, in the beginning, I did that. I read a lot of romantic comedies. With a lot of what I had read at that particular time, there always felt like a missing element to me. Like, I couldn't tell you what it was. It was just kind of that. It feels like something is missing from these books that are not making it the total package for me. And maybe I achieved it in faking it, or maybe not. <laughs> but I tried to write whatever I thought was missing in it. The funny thing is I, I haven't read nearly as much romantic comedy in the last five years that I did in the very beginning. I'm much more spread out and diverse. I'm not really dedicated to one particular genre of reading now. I suppose you'll be very you'll be very comfortable in terms of knowing what you want to write within that genre. So maybe you're not needing to to read what other people are doing because you know you're focused on what you you want to do. It might be that. It's funny because sometimes I feel like I don't really have a genre. I get marketed a lot in either romantic comedy or women's fiction. Even the even the book I'm writing right now, I already showed it to my literary agent. She said, this is women's fiction, which I, if you asked me, I wouldn't, that's not where I have would have put it. I would have just said it was contemporary, but that's about it. So sometimes I'm not even a good judge <laughs> of, of what my genre is. And I don't like the, this, this is a whole other podcast of, I do not like the term women's fiction. I don't like no, the genre women's fiction because I think you're excluding half of your potential readers, you're pigeonholing into a certain, and you know, this just came out on, you know, there was something on Twitter where 
everybody was praising Jonathan Franzen for writing this, you know, novel about a family. And it's like, excuse me, that's pretty much what women's fiction has been about for the last, you know, but we don't get told that we are the, you know, the definitive writer of, of the family. We're just told that we are, we write women's fiction for women. And it's like, no, that's not really true. So I have a, I have a huge problem with that. Because funny, I, I had a discussion with somebody recently. I'd read a book called, it's called A Bookshop in Paris. We'll say that's what it's, it's published at over here by Ellen Feldman. I think I've heard of that, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a fantastic book, but even the, the cover was obviously designed, marketed towards a female leadership. But I picked it up because it the word bookshop in the title. Yeah. And it's a, a brilliant book and I, I don't like tagging books in terms of gender because I just think it's either a good book or it's not and people should enjoy it regardless. Well, I even had a backhanded compliment once. And and this guy was well-meaning, you know, but it was a man who said, you know, Elisa's books are really good. You should read them even though they're romance. <laughs> it was like, you don't realize that you just put down not only an entire genre, but an entire group of writers, an entire group of readers, and even kind of me, as if I was right already writing something le- less than and happened to get lucky because the man liked it, <laughs> you know? So it was, you know, and again, he, he was nice. He was well-meaning. He was complimentary of my work individually. But when he kind of lumped that in, it was like, it's romance, but you'll like it. <laughs> it's kind of like, okay, you know? I mean, in terms, I was going to ask you just in terms of, we were talking about you know, what, what you've been reading, obviously, in nonfiction. Yes. Do you have a, as most of us do, have a never-ending pile of books to be read? It's always. Oh a- my goodness! Yes, yes. I, in fact, I did it, and I'm sure there are readers everywhere who are going to throw daggers at me for this. But a little over a year ago, I, I did a huge purge of everything in my house. I mean, DVDs, books, clothing, you know, everything. But I did, I did books. I, I did a purge of books. And, you know, to some people, it's like, you got rid of books. That is just the most sacrilegious thing you could do. But I did. I was just in this mood of there's just too much stuff in the house. And I think I knew we were heading, we were heading towards another move and I just didn't want to pack it all. But I did get rid of a lot of books and I was really, and in that pile, there were so many that I hadn't yet read. So the decision then made was, do I keep this book because eventually I'm going to read it? Or am I never going to get to this one? And let me get it to somebody else who will, you know, who will pick it up and read it so quickly. And that was actually a hard decision to make. But I've got that now. I mean, since that big purge, God, I've bought so many books. And yeah, some of them are just waiting to be read. Because I wonder, you know, that way, and I've done it in the past a couple of times, but I have you know, f- filled a box of books and then just given them to a charity shop. And yes. every now and again, six months or a year later, for some reason, a book will pop into my head. I'll go, I've got a copy of that. And I'll look through the bookshelves and I'll realize, oh, I gave that away. I have done that too, where all of a sudden it's like, oh, you know what I want to read? I want to read such and such a thing. And I'm like, oh, I gave it away. <laughs> um, and Or that, you know, yeah, that one in the purge. Actually, there was one that we donated them all to this used bookstore. This is, we had been, uh, my husband and I were living in Maine. And so we donated to this used bookstore. And then I think it was like two days later or something, or, th- or a week later, I realized this one book, I hadn't, I, I had put it in the, in the giveaway pile because I hadn't looked at it in years and everything. And it was a book my twin brother had given me like 20, 30 years ago. And it was like a coffee table book, you know? And all of a sudden I said, oh my God, I gave away that book. 
really was like, I wanted it like the worst way. And I went back to the used bookstore and I bought it back. (laughs) You know, know, I I read a book recently where it was, they just asked various authors for their most, most embarrassing moments as a writer. And and one writer had told the story of how he'd gone into a charity shop and he saw a copy of his book in it and he thought, oh, that's quite nice. And he just picked it up and opened it and it was actually, he'd signed it, but it was like two mum and dad signed from him. <laughs> mum and dad had put it away. That uh, is embarrassing. <laughs> that is embarrassing. But funny as well. I, I have signed my books. Don't sell this on eBay unless you're sure you could get more than you paid for it. <laughs> That's wise advice as well. <laughs> yeah. We uh, sadly we've almost uh, run out of time in yeah. terms of this podcast. You'd you'd mentioned just you obviously you're working on you know what we mentioned right at the very start of, you know how prolific you've been in terms of working out a book a year. Is the plan is to is it plan to get another book out this year that you're working on just now? I hope so. It's actually the the last book that came out was You Me and Mr. Blue Sky, which was 2019. So I've kind of had I I actually took a break for a while. And I've been kind of struggling to get back. I've really had a lot of writer's block in the last few years. So I have something. I'm working on it. My agent has seen it. Needs one more run through in terms of rewrites. I've been dragging my heels a lot this particular month with it. I think I just got to get back on track for May. So I don't know if that will come out this year. But I'm hoping within the next year that comes out. And I think I told you also, I do have a draft, a very rough draft of a, another memoir. And same thing, I that might be as early or as late as 2023, depending on how this other one goes. It's like I said, it's gotten harder to write. I'm actually not as prolific as I was. It's I've slowed down quite a bit in the last couple of years. Fingers crossed that, uh, that the next one will come out uh, sooner rather than later. And yeah, I'm hoping that too, actually, because I do love this story. I really, really love the story. As, as hard as it's been for me to to get motivated to be meticulous about finishing it, I love it. So I hope so. Well, Lisa, um, it's been an absolute joy talking to you. You it and I really spoke has. already uh, on the, the Duran Duran Albums podcast about yes. another great passion, which is Duran Duran. But um Obviously, that that is in line with books as well, and it's been wonderful listening to you talking about some of your your favorite books. Well, this is, you've got my two favorite subjects: so <laughs> books, writing, Duran Duran, <laughs> three. <laughs> There's nothing better. It really isn't, you know. That's the trifecta, <laughs> and when you can get when you can merge all three, that's even better. <laughs> Absolutely. But thanks very much for being on the Read All About It. Oh, thank you. This was this was an absolute delight. And I will talk to my husband and tell him you would like him to be a guest. And I think he would be a good guest. And we won't share answers, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast. And I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.